There's no roadmap for that. There is no exception for the health of the mother. It's very clear that it has to be life-saving. But how far do you let that go? How long do you wait? She tells me, pregnancy did this to you. You had a stroke in your optic nerve. But there's nothing I can do for you because you're pregnant. I should be able to talk to a patient who has cancer and is pregnant about all of the options for their health care. And right now, I, I cannot. As the battle over abortion rights rages across America, lives are at stake. Barriers to reproductive health care access have forced many people to travel long distances and to cross state lines to freedom of choice for their body, for their future, and for ours. You'll hear the stories from the front lines, from those seeking abortion care and the heroes who helped them along the way, one journey at a time. This is Crossing the Line. Layla Hushmand and her husband, Jolien Zook, live in the suburbs just outside of Washington, D.C. We've been together for 12 years? 12 years. It was summer in undergrad where I came to visit a friend who was living at the University of Maryland that summer. It's my roommate. It's my roommate, <laughs> and that's how we met. Yeah. Layla is director of strategy for a medical devices company with a background and training in neuroscience. I always thought I'd actually be a doctor. Once I started meeting more physicians and surgeons, and they kind of told me the reality of what their lives were like and how much crushing debt they were under, I thought, <laughs> maybe not. When the timing was right, Layla and her husband decided to try for a baby. We had just bought a house. I had just been promoted. And our friends were also having kids at the same time. Several of our friends had had a lot of trouble conceiving. So, you know, we were expecting it to be like better part of a year of trying, I would say. So I think we were kind of going into it with tempered expectations. And I mean, she realized she was pregnant probably, you know, a week later or so. And it was immediately, I, I kind of felt like something was wrong. Three days later, Layla had a miscarriage, but they didn't let that deter them. The second time they tried, Layla became pregnant again. And then this little baby would be due on Christmas. So my husband and I thought, okay, well, that was the practice pregnancy. This is the real one. And things were looking better this time. But the morning after their first ultrasound, something went terribly wrong. She woke up and she was like, I, I have some, like, some starburst in my eye, that's not normal. I thought I had a migraine, and it's like out of my right eye, I'm trying to see through a layer of Vaseline. I have never had a migraine with any kind of visual disturbances, and I'm definitely not having a typical migraine. It's getting worse. I'm nauseous beyond belief. They immediately went to see an ophthalmologist. She was in constant pain and in agony. I was extremely worried and I didn't know what to do. I, I mean, I was scared shitless. The looks on the medical assistant's faces was just like, we'd never seen anything this like this before. And every time they shine a light in my eye to do any kind of eye imaging, I just vomit violently, uncontrollably. Like, and in a 60-minute appointment, I vomited 20 times. I lost consciousness, and my gut was telling me something is very, very wrong here. So the ophthalmologist comes in, and she has a retina specialist on the phone. I hear him say she needs steroids, she needs blood thinners, and she tells me, pregnancy did this to you. You had a stroke in your optic nerve, but there's nothing I can do for you because you're pregnant. This did not make sense to the couple. 
It was like, this is crazy. Like, we're kind of conditioned to think that pregnant women get the best medical care, but it's, it's the opposite. I'm stunned, and I say, if you're telling me I need to choose between my vision and an eight-week embryo, I choose my vision. She was absolutely petrified of any information she had given me leading me down the path of an abortion. And then she sent me home and told me to take baby aspirin and come back in a week. Following the overturn of Roe, as accessing abortion becomes even more difficult, the ripple effects are becoming painfully clear, particularly when it comes to a pregnant person's overall health care. Now, doctors are becoming increasingly concerned. They're very worried about what they can and cannot do for their patients. So we spoke to OBGYNs. All of them expressed concerns that new laws will put their patients' health at risk. For pregnant people diagnosed with life-threatening conditions, when does their survival become the priority? So this is very different than anything we faced before. There's no roadmap for that. That's Dr. Lisa Barriolet, an associate professor of obstetrics and gynecology, specializing in ovarian cancer at the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine and Public Health. In Wisconsin, the overturn of Roe triggered a zombie law. Written in 1849, the law criminalizes all abortions, except when the mother's life is in imminent danger. It's saying that abortion is a crime other than to save the life of a patient. And when I say a crime, I mean a felony. It is different from if there's a concern about medical malpractice when you're taking care of a patient, we know that our hospital is going to support us and we have malpractice insurance. There's no insurance that exists for physicians to cover them in case of felony charges. Defining imminent danger is problematic because sometimes treatment is necessary to prevent that danger from becoming imminent or fatal for a patient. It's very clear that it has to be life-saving. So her life presumably has to be in somewhat proximate danger, not theoretical or abstract danger. There's patients who may have subclinical infections or things that are very likely to progress and get worse, but how far do you let that go? How long do you wait? Very challenging to get that right. If it's a very narrow definition, definition. and the reality is there's a multitude of health-related reasons why abortions are done in our country every day. Wisconsin's 1849 law is so vague, in some cases it means lawyers, not doctors, are making decisions about a patient's health care. It's adding a layer of fear when there's already, um, again, these are very nuanced and difficult decisions. And they often are happening emergently and quickly. So to have to call a lawyer while you're trying to take care of a patient is really the last thing anyone would hope to have happening. This legal ambiguity is putting many of those who have a life-threatening diagnosis in peril by restricting them from getting treatment that could prevent their illness from becoming fatal. These cases are not limited to states with abortion bans, as Leila and her husband discovered. So I call my ob office. A woman answered the phone and started telling me, oh, well, you should have Tylenol and ice water for vision loss. But Leila knows what she's experiencing is serious possibly life-threatening. I'm eight weeks and two days pregnant. I'm not having a migraine. I had a stroke in my optic nerve and I'm being denied treatment. And every time they shine a light in my eye, I just vomit. You have a concussion and someone shines a light into your eye, you throw up. So that's a sign of elevated intracranial pressure, which is dangerous. The inner workings of my very slow-moving brain at this point think priority is go get an abortion. Apparently no one's gonna touch you when you're pregnant. For Layla, the choice was obvious. 
I'm hanging on by a thread and I need my care coordinated for me. It's like, listen, when I was miscarrying, my doctor offered me a dose of misoprostol. Can she offer that to me right now? And she said, well, you know, the doctors in this office have different opinions on that, so I don't want to speak to them. She told me to write my doctor a note through the portal. The more rational calm in her voice in my mind says, get off the phone. This is going nowhere. You're wasting time. It's 3 o'clock on a Wednesday. Abortion clinics close soon. Get off the phone. I've got two hours to figure this out. So then I just start calling clinics sort of frantically. Since the overturn of Roe, nearly a third of all states have banned abortions. While several have allowances for the life of the mother, most of these laws were written by lawmakers with no medical background. Dr. Noelle Leconte, an oncologist and associate professor at the University of Wisconsin Medical School, thinks it's absurd that a law written 173 years ago is causing this deadly predicament. In 1849, women didn't vote, chemo wasn't a thing, radiation didn't exist. We were riding horses, you know, we weren't driving a car. Like, it just, nothing about our modern world was, <laughs> existed then. And it's crazy that that law is going to dictate medical care. It became immediately clear to me that I would not know what to do if a woman came in and was pregnant and had a new diagnosis of cancer. This scenario is more common than one might believe. The most common cancers where a person has a pregnancy or becomes pregnant is breast cancer and cervical cancer. Leukemia is notable because they're usually extremely sick and in the hospital, and it's not like you can just walk to Planned Parenthood, right? You're hospitalized. So when a person is first diagnosed with cancer, we like to do staging scans, like CAT scans and PET scans, which are not safe to do in pregnancy pretty much ever. You can do ultrasounds and sometimes modified MRIs. So right out of the gate, I can't really stage their cancer. I can't give chemotherapy in the first trimester. You can do it in the second and third trimester, but it presents some risk to the baby and the mother. So it just really, really complicates it. Delaying treatment to allow a pregnancy to continue can put a patient's life at risk. So best outcomes are with the earliest stage possible. It could be the difference between we can cure this cancer and we can't. Even with birth control and the best of intentions, people can and will still get pregnant. I counsel my patients, don't get pregnant, don't get your partner pregnant, because this chemo will harm that baby. And despite the counseling, despite access to you know birth control and so forth, it happens. I feel certain that the patient should be the one who makes this decision and not somebody else on behalf of the patient. These decisions were never easy, but reinstated zombie laws could prevent abortion from being considered in the full spectrum of healthcare options. Usually what we would do is sit down with a woman and say, you have this cancer and you have this pregnancy, let's talk through all of these implications. Let's have you meet with the OB team, let's have you meet with the higher risk pregnancy team. You know, let's make sure the treatment you choose aligns with your values, but now like, all of that is taken off the table. I should be able to talk to a patient who has cancer and is pregnant about all of the options for their health care. And right now, I, I cannot. Dr. Lacanti is frustrated that abortion patients facing life-threatening issues aren't even being discussed. Ultimately, I decided my voice was needed, and I just decided I needed to just share my truth. The vast, vast majority Certainly my patients are people that need to get treatment for their condition. You know, it's usually a heartbreaking situation. It's 
a very much wanted pregnancy, but their health, you know, the health of the mother needs to trump that pregnancy. Like, we know how to do abortions. There's really not a medical reason to withhold it. When healthcare becomes politicized is when it is just terrible. Layla is lucky. She's been able to make an appointment for an abortion just a few miles from her home. If she lived in Wisconsin or any of the states with full bans, she wouldn't be able to receive care, even though her condition is worsening. They ask you to shower before the appointment. I pass out in the shower. And then I'm wondering, like, am I, are they even going to take me for this appointment? Am I, am I stable enough? My thought in that situation was like, you were looking pretty rough, right? You were looking pretty nervous. I think I just knew you needed to be unpregnant in the, the most gentle and quickest way that we can. That's nurse midwife Morgan Nuzzo, who was assigned to care for Layla during her abortion procedure. And Morgan's one of the first people I meet. And she goes, well, you seem very sure about this abortion. I'm like, yeah, I am. And it was just the first person who didn't doubt me or gaslight me. She was like, yeah, that, that seems like a reasonable thing to do. And I was so grateful for that. For nurse midwife Nuzzo, Layla's case stood out. Yeah, I was like, I don't, I don't know what's wrong with her, but she's decided. And I just need to get out of her way. I just need to open this door for her and like allow this to happen for her. None of it was important to me at that moment other than being like, yeah, I can do this for you. Of course I can. Nuzo has always been passionate about reproductive rights, so much so that in a time when countless clinics are being shuttered across the country, she and her friend, Dr. Diane Horvath, decided to open an all-trimester clinic in Maryland. I mean, this is what I've always wanted to do. I worked with Diane several years ago at Planned Parenthood. She's a force, too, you know? And I remember her standing up and saying, there's always going to be someone to do the 2 a.m. C-section. There's not always going to be someone who stands up and does the abortions. And I was like, me, I see myself reflected in you. For Layla, Nuzo's empathy was exactly what she needed. You go into any kind of medical procedure a little nervous, but, you know, Morgan told me every single step that was going to happen. And I think I just kept begging for sedation. (laughs) She held my hand the entire procedure. She told me exactly what was going to happen when it happened. When something was going to hurt, she told me it would. I felt completely prepared and I was just so grateful that it was over I felt like this huge weight was lifted off of me and like I remember the very first thing I said to myself in the bathroom still half sedated was okay I'm a whole person whose life is worth living again According to Dr. Barriolette at the University of Wisconsin, reproductive health care is inextricably tied to health care overall. We know women in our state who are Black are three times more likely to die in pregnancy than white women. How can we say you must take on this risk? And for a woman with chronic kidney disease, it's tenfold. And for a woman who has a cancer diagnosis, that pregnancy may almost certainly be a death sentence for them, or at least really change their long-term life expectancy. Being pregnant can even advance a disease more rapidly. There are many cancers that have hormone receptors, estrogen receptors most famously. So having the increased circulating estrogen levels of pregnancy can make the cancer grow more quickly. There are chemotherapies that have unknown risk in pregnancy. Some cancers really need certain types of chemotherapy in order for those treatments to work. We are already in such a nuanced and challenging space. 
where you're trying to, even outside of the pregnancy, understand what the best course of action is going to be for that patient. Is it surgery? Is it chemotherapy? Is it radiation? What are their future fertility wishes? What else is happening in terms of medical comorbidities? And then you have someone with a new cancer diagnosis and you layer on limitations surrounding abortion access on the table to interfere with all the other complications of these conversations. It's, it's too much for any provider or patient to shoulder. For Dr. Barrylet's colleague, Dr. Laconti, this situation is undermining her responsibilities as a physician. I feel a lot of moral distress that my patients don't get access to the best list of options. I think where I also feel some ethical struggle is that I'm being told right now by our lawyers that it's still allowable if the woman is imminently dying. Most of my patients are not imminently dying. They're going to die in six months or nine months or maybe a couple of years. And so um, I'm being told just give the woman chemo if she needs chemo. But I ethically cannot do that as an oncologist in the first trimester because I will cause grave harm to that baby. And there's no guarantee that there will be a miscarriage. So I may hurt two people instead of one. I mean, it just it's a total violation of the Hippocratic Oath for me. Population Media Center is excited to announce their next podcast series, The State of Women. This insightful and timely podcast is hosted by TV host and correspondent Kimberly Brooks and stand-up comedian Gina Brion. This series explores which U.S. states are getting gender equity right, which are failing, and what you can do about it. Go to thestateofwomenpod.com to find out more about this relevant series. And subscribe on Apple, Amazon, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hours after her abortion, Layla traveled to Pennsylvania so she could finally receive care for her ocular stroke. There she learned how close she had been to dying. I went to one of the few eye hospital emergency rooms in the country. They examined me and immediately knew what it was. By then, the condition had deteriorated so much that the diagnosis was obvious. The retina fellow told me, if you had come here still pregnant, I would not have been able to touch you. Did I do the right thing? And they're like, yeah, (laughs) yeah, you did. Uh, Because pregnancy limits the utilization of certain medications that I would have needed for treatment. So the outcomes would have been, you're going to go blind in at least one eye. And if you're unlucky, really unlucky, it spreads to your brain and you die. But when you're immunocompromised, like when you're pregnant, viruses can do terrible things. For Layla, this was a wake-up call, which underlines the new reality all pregnant people will now face. I should have been given a termination and then treated. You have to live in the right place. You have to have the right insurance. And all these barriers that I am lucky to have overcome, most people, I think, can't. Layla's husband, Jolian, also points to the larger issue. It made clear to me that basically any restriction on abortion is a death sentence for a lot of people. Because you don't know something's life-saving until after the fact, until it's too late. It left me really outraged that there's very little focus on health care for the woman during pregnancy. It's almost all on fetal care. My background certainly helped. I'm a PhD-educated woman, and there's my privilege, right? It's the fact that I was like, 
this. I'm not going to live this way one more day. And there are other ways that current bans on abortion will impact patient outcomes. Dr. Barriolette is concerned about a shortage of doctors who will know how to perform abortions, even in life-saving situations. We are going to figure out a way for our residents to have access to abortion training, which we think is absolutely critical and necessary to our medical school, as well as of benefit to the women in our state. That said, if I were applying for residency right now, and if I were looking for the best program to provide me with the best, most comprehensive training, I would probably be looking at states where abortion is legal. And so we're going to have these tremendous deserts without access. And it's going to be very difficult for the residency programs who all their neighboring states also have no access. I mean, now we're talking about plane rides, time away from family. It's hard enough to be a resident. Now you have to be a resident who's doing rotations in another state. That's a lot to ask of our trainees. And I think it should be a requirement because it's an important part of essential health care. Cynthia Maldonado is an undergraduate student with hopes of becoming an OBGYN. She's at the University of Wisconsin to shadow Dr. Lacanti. I grew up in Miami, Florida. I've always been really interested in reproductive justice. Eventually, I want to open my own practice in like an underserved community. I want to become a doctor because it's not only an issue of like education, it's an issue of like representation. So having a Latina doctor, I think, is important to save lives and be there for people that need it. The recent bans and restrictions affect Cynthia on a number of levels as a person of color, a future OBGYN, and as a woman of childbearing age. Just thinking about like my bodily autonomy and just thinking about how my rights are considered in this country, I think it was made very clear. Um, especially, I think there's a the factor of me being a woman and then there's a factor of me being Latina and it's just like something that is impacted when it comes to abortion. And I think it happens with all communities. There's that intersectionality that I worry about. As well as that, I think people were starting to worry about now, what about contraceptives? And then I'm thinking about like period tracking apps. Like I remember it was a really big talk on like TikTok and Twitter to delete your period tracking apps. I deleted my app that day. So it's just a very scary place to be in the United States right now. And as more states limit abortion care day after day, this Gen Zer wonders what the future holds. I want to apply to med school here in Wisconsin. I was even thinking about, like, do I want to be in this state? I feel unsafe here. So there's an impact there as well. And abortion care is health care. I think it's essential, and I think it should be something that's non-negotiable. She is already getting a glimpse of that future by shadowing Dr. Laconti, who recalls the day Roe fell. I happened to be the first oncologist on the inpatient unit after... Roe v. Wade was overturned, so I probably had some of the first conversations about it, but there's a lot of uncertainty. So we just kind of talking in private. There's a lot of fear about, like, written communication, so a lot of hallway conversations, phone. (laughs) It's an unprecedented time for me, for sure. Since having the abortion and her recovery from the ocular stroke, Layla has gone through four surgeries to try and repair the damage. While the latest surgery was successful, she's still legally blind in one eye. Did a little bit more laser on my retina to stabilize things so that we have a chance of recovering some central vision. And since then, things have just been steady, but now I've developed such a heavy cataract that I have no idea what my vision's going to turn out like. So until surgery number five, it's still a guessing game. I'm just, I'm grateful that I'm not not experiencing further complications. So I don't know what the future looks like. I think we have to let a few things play out. There's some things physically I can't rush. 
And I just think pregnancy is out of the question for me. I just can't imagine myself taking that risk. I mean, I didn't know going into this whole experience that being pregnant makes you a second-class citizen inside of your body, no matter where you live. For the moment, Layla and her husband have gotten a puppy. We've discovered that our favorite foods are strawberries, beets, cucumbers, blueberries, and then carrots. In Here roughly that order. Can you jump? Can you jump up? The puppy Roll gives us joy. Yeah, we've been having a blast with her. If there's any silver lining, it's her. This is what you need to learn. <laughs> when you roll over, you get a treat. Good girl! Good girl! The pregnancy that almost took Layla's life left her with a new purpose. It feels like a different life. I feel like it completely changed the trajectory of my life. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you have almost a singular purpose now, I feel like. Yeah. Yeah, abortion rights just feel more important than anything else to me. She refuses to be quiet when lives are at stake. The country just isn't ready for what's happening. And I gotta admit, I have more than a little, little survivor's guilt over it because I was so lucky compared to what it would be like today, let alone in another state. I don't think we're hearing about all the horror stories. We're hearing about no. the ones that people are brave enough to talk about and have survived. The actual impact is worse. So Layla has become more involved in advocacy for reproductive rights. Thank you for joining us here today. And thank you to Planned Parenthood for allowing me to speak. I'm honored to be here, though I'm really angry that we have to be. One day, while doing research, she came across a familiar name. When I saw something about a clinic in Maryland, I went to the website and saw Morgan. I have been <laughs> looking for this woman for the longest time. When Layla and nurse midwife Morgan Nuzo reconnected, it was as if they'd been friends forever. Layla's the first person that I've ever cared for who had an abortion who like, I got to reconnect with after. And Layla is the symbol of all those people that I've cared for up until this point. You kept me safe and I don't know how to thank you. I feel like I owe you my life. I just remember how straightforward you were and you gave me confidence and you just sort of sucked the panic out of the room. I was the patient, not the eight week embryo. I felt like the patient, like my life finally mattered to someone. Yeah, you matter so much to me. You matter to me too. Next time on Crossing the Line. In the 100 days since Roe was overturned, 66 clinics in 15 states have been forced to stop providing abortions. Despite this trend, nurse midwife Morgan Nuzzo and Dr. Diane Horvath are doing the opposite, opening an all-trimester clinic. It's really meaningful to have our community here and be here with us and support us, you know, Diane and I. We've been practicing like our intentions around this space, and we know how important this space is going to be for a lot of people. Their intention is that this clinic becomes an example of a system that better serves the reproductive care needs of all patients. A system that is far stronger and healthier than Roe ever was. 
Roe was important. I don't think that we can minimize that it made a material difference for a lot of people, but it was never enough. We need to protect patients, we need to protect clinicians and clinic workers. Now that that's gone, it frees our imaginations a little bit to be able to think about what this should look like and what would a truly protective legal framework look like and what would a truly just and equitable care system look like. And if we can reproduce that even locally now, then we have something we can test and something we can work with, places that are truly compassionate, affirming, patient-centered. The right to choose is on the ballot November 8th. State-level races are critical to our future. Need help finding where to vote? Go to vote.org. Want to volunteer and take action? Check out Supermajority or Emerge America. Join CTL Pod and vote by November 8th. This is Crossing the Line. This podcast was brought to you by Population Media Center. Executive producers are Lisa Caruso and Alex Demenenko. Co-producer is Kathleen Bedoya, and associate producer is Dominica Ruelas. This episode is field produced by Aaron Essenmacher and Lynn Hughes, edited by Bruno Falcon, with production services provided by Pidge Productions. Production coordinating is by June Neely, Impact Strategy is led by Charity Twos, and original music is by Valerie Ortiz. Narration is read by Tatiana Saint-Fard. Special thanks to Dr. Noel Leconti, Dr. Lisa Barriolet, Sarah Benzel, and the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine and Public Health, Cynthia Maldonado, Leila Hushman, and her husband, Jolian Zook, nurse midwife Morgan Nuso, and Partners Abortion Care. And of course, to all those who shared their stories with us. An additional thank you to our partners, Power to Decide, AbortionFinder.org, and Plan C Pills. Check out ctlpod.com for abortion resources and ways to take action. Subscribe and review CTL Pod on Apple, Amazon, Spotify, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. 